Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. It's me, uh, screaming heroin wizard, holding me merely. Ah! Don't grab me, you giant ape! And it's me, your fast-talking Hollywood movie man, Carl Denham slash Bruiser. And you, this this picture is gonna need a dame, and it's gonna need a monkey, and it's gonna need savages, and it's gonna need uh, several women getting thrown to their deaths, and it's gonna ah! need. Every ha-cha-cha-cha, what a movie. The world will be singing its praises. I just need a fancy face and a real big gorilla man. Uh, And yes, of course, we are talking about the original King Kong, uh, 1933 King Kong film film today, as well as uh, the beginnings of the franchise as we know it, leading up to, of course... Uh, King Kong versus Godzilla, the remake, the the uh, the rebooted uh, d- match em up, the monster verse, the monster verse, modern hit that we're all looking forward to. And explain how this came to be because it's such an odd scenario where there's this American monster movie, this Japanese monster film. They each had two two editions in their uh, in their franchise up to that point only, and then came together to essentially re-spark their popularity in the 60s. It's such a weird tale. Next week, we'll be covering the the rest of the franchise, starting with um, the first... Dino uh, De Laurentiis, yeah, all the, the way to 1970s, the legendary pictures. Up, up to now, up to Skull Island, which was phenomenal, and I did enjoy it in the theater very much so. But uh, before we get to that, we're, we're spending much more time on the first film, than anything else today, because it really is so fascinating. Uh, definitely learning about its director, Marion Caldwell Cooper. I, I It's one of those lives you read about. And I think this is just most people who lived in the 20s and 30s and 40s. It just puts Everybody. you to shame. You feel like I'm yeah. just like, I'm just sitting around all day playing fighting games and like not leaving the house. And yes, we are in a pandemic, so it is kind of different. But still, the man makes me feel like I've never lived. All these people got through the Spanish flu fine. They've still, they, they pandemicked <laughs> up and they still managed to fight in eight wars and father a million children and found eight international companies and marry the most beautiful women in the world. Like that, it is every single step of the way just speaks to just how much harder everything, everybody went back in the day. Yeah. And hold on, we watched uh, the original movie in kind of a 
virtual communal setting with the Sunday study group. Absolutely. Uh, that's a weekly stream we do where we cover upcoming topics with uh, patrons. Go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew to find out how you can join in. 100%. And holy shit on a banana in the middle of the jungle. I feel so dumb with how impressed I was with a 1933 black and white movie that like, it is one of the most famous movies of all time. It is a like pop culture icon, but for some reason I just carried with me that like, yeah, yeah, it's a boring old movie, like whatever. Well, it's, that makes sense. I mean, how many times have you known about a film because it's historically important and then you go back to watch it and it's like half as interesting as you thought it would be, but you're right. King Kong's different. King Kong, especially once you get past the half hour mark, rips. It shreds. It is a nonstop action showcase that is like, just an incredible Fast mixture. Fast and the Furious 7 style. Yeah. Like a, it's uh, the 1933's pace. best effort at, yeah, the biggest action blockbuster you could imagine. And it's so mind-blowing because, you know, you're expecting... Yeah, okay, like, everybody's familiar with, like, uh, Fay Ray screaming and, like, tied up, and you're familiar with, like, the Empire State Building, you know, it's imagery that's used in, like, cartoons and commercials, it's, like, part of just the background radiation of American culture, and the idea that, like, oh, just people were dumb back then and were impressed by a monkey, and not just, no, this movie was, in fact, a singularly amazing experience that affected multiple generations. Just didn't occur to me. Although it was pretty quickly censored in its wide release, uh, that this film in its unchanged state is brutal. There are people getting stomped on and mur- just murdered left and right, right in front of your eyes. And yeah, they're usually like models or like mannequins or whatever. You know what I mean? Or like little toy figures or whatever, but you're still just like, damn, they went there. This monkey, they don't pull any punches. This monkey murders like a hundred people easily in this movie. It's crazy. The thing is that I didn't realize, cause I, you know, you don't think about it. You just think everything was tamer back in the day, but uh, King Kong 1933 came out about a year before the Hayes code was introduced. That yes. kind of, shackled what American filmmakers could portray and kind of just show in a widespread release. And this was uh, before the MPAA and the rating systems and all these things. So like they could, the sky was the limit with their imagination. They almost every shot is using a revolutionary special effects technique that involves the creatures. Like it is a, Again, and even the uh, even before they hit the uh, Skull Island and we see Kong and it really picks up the pace, the dialogue is snappy. The characters are compelling. Like, you know, this is a this is a style of like people point to Jaws as the birth of the summer blockbuster, the uh, action all in one entertainment spectacle. But really, King Kong, like laid the groundwork decades before and the uh, performances by the actors And the performances, quote unquote, by uh, Willis O'Brien, the stop motion animation legend who like truly imbued uh, Kong and all the other creatures with a level of like visceral realness and personality and and I don't know, acting chops that makes them really compelling to look at in a way that uh, later movies that have to kind of deal with just a guy in a suit 
just can't match. Like it is an Oscar worthy performance that is given as painstakingly animated, which is so funny considering Kong versus Godzilla, which is like Godzilla is like the ultimate man in a monster costume franchise. And so, mm-hmm. of course, uh, the people who made, did all the claim, I mean, Cooper, I have a funny quote from Cooper. We'll get to when we get to he's incensed. He's like, I wanted the whole thing to be claymation and all this stuff. And there's just this guy in a monkey costume trying to be King Kong. And uh, I think uh, Kong versus Godzilla is quite fun. But uh, uh, all that said, it is it doesn't it doesn't hold a candle to the artistry of the effects and everything that happened, you know, 30 years before that movie was made with uh, the original King Kong. You have got to if you have never watched this movie, if you are in the same boat that I am where you're just like, yeah, yeah, old timey golden age Hollywood, whatever. You have to watch this movie. Yeah, it's it is on essential. It's on HBO Max. I think we ended up renting it from Amazon because for some reason there wasn't subtitles on the version on HBO Max that we saw. But um, it's everywhere. And also, mm. I watched King Kong versus Godzilla, which is also quite fun uh, for free on YouTube. So definitely I check did that, that out. this morning. And I watched the weird American Lordy. version though. And we'll yeah, talk yeah. about it. We have the weird ass stapled together American version that's like so bizarre how they did that. And I don't remember what we. So I'll go ahead and say too, we're not going to cover Godzilla nearly as well. And the there's a two part episode. Yeah, we did a two part episode. Go back and check it out. But I was trying to remember how much we even covered King Kong versus Godzilla. I doubt we did. I don't know what I said about it. So, hi, past me, if you're listening to that episode after this one. Tell my past me I said hi. Um, uh, tell past me that we will get out of the Greenpoint studio at some point, move <laughs> to a different studio in Greenpoint, and then a giant superflu will happen, and then I'll end up moving to L.A. Tell them past me that. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, I'm also very interested to see if we even covered it, because there's some very... Don't do anything to stop it. Don't do yeah, anything, don't do anything to... to stop it. Everything's cool. We're good. <laughs> But uh, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I wonder how much we covered because, of course, it was an overwhelming amount of films in the Godzilla franchise. But there are some really funny, interesting little tales when, once we get to that movie. But before we get to that movie, let's talk about the prolific life of Marion Caldwell Cooper, the man behind the monkey. To a certain degree, there's some other key players, of course. It's not just one person, but this guy is fascinating, so let's get into This it. movie, I, yeah, I need to stress this enough, this movie would not have happened if it wasn't for this exact confluence of exceptional people at this exceptional point in history, and it just so happens that Marion C. Cooper was the kind of fulcrum that tied everybody together. So, Marion Caldwell Cooper, born in Jacksonville, Florida, he decided he wanted to be an explorer at the age of six after being told tales from the book Explorations and Adventures in Equatorial Africa. In this book, this book was written in 1861, it chronicled the adventures of Paul du Chailu in Africa encountering various wildlife, and Cooper was immediately drawn to the stories about the gorillas, especially one gorilla that had a, quote, extraordinary size that was described as both, quote, invincible and, quote, king of the African forest by the natives there. And later in the book, Du Chalou describes a uh, gorilla as a, quote, hellish dream creature that was, quote, half man, half beast. So definitely getting the, the gears turning on this fascinating uh, monkey creature that existed out there in the world. Definitely a much more dramatic uh, de- uh, description than how I would describe a uh, <laughs> modern day gorilla as witnessed in the highlands and lowlands of Africa, which is... Um, 
uh, weird tiny dicked dude that smells his own farts all day. I call tigers shitty cats. What are you going to do about it? After graduating from high school, he went into the U.S. Naval Academy, but was expelled his senior year for, quote, hell raising and for championing air power. I don't know how you would get expelled for, I guess, because it was a boat school. And he was like, these boats are for babies. We should all be in planes right now. It's kind of a hilarious thing to do at a Naval Academy. But either way, he ends up working. I don't want to be in normal boats. I want (laughs) to be in sky boats. Sky boats rule. No more boats suck. God, I wish this boat was in the sky. You're losing. Get this guy out of here. Yeah, I'd hate that guy, too, if I went to boat school. He worked as a reporter after that for different newspapers, which is getting him starting on writing, on exploration, on uncovering hidden lies. I don't know what it got him into. But in 1916, he went to the Georgia National Guard to chase down Pancho Villa. This is a famous Mexican revolutionary general during the Mexican Revolution. And eventually, he ends up in the Mexican Revolution is going to come up a couple times in this Wild tale, by the way. He eventually went to the military aeronautics school in Atlanta to learn how to fly and graduated at the top of his class. Then he ends up serving as a DH-4 bomber pilot in the United States Army Air Service during World War I. And in 1918, his plane is shot down. It catches fire, and Cooper had to spin the plane to get rid of the flames, after which he, be, he, he lands on the ground and becomes a prisoner of war, which is not the first time he's going to become a prisoner of war or the first time his plane's going to crash he's going to survive. So one of the things you have to know about this guy is he was kind of the runt of his family. He was stocky. He was short. He kind of had that like Teddy Roosevelt kind of like, fuck you guys. I'm approved. I'm actually the coolest guy ever like drive within himself. Right. So like all the and so all the things that are fascinating right now, uh, you know, world exploring airplanes like uh, modern warfare like all you know these are all the cutting edge shit of the 1910s and the 1920s he's like just a man of the future he just sees where all the cool shit is happening and he wants to just touch it get involved man like yeah yeah. and this is what happens when you don't have the internet right you go do cool shit you don't just watch a youtube video about the cool (laughs) shit about the cool shit Get a weird little <laughs> dopamine release and then jerk off and go to bed. He actually even worse, Jake. I swam. I swam with sharks the other night on my Oculus. You think I'm actually going to go do that now? <laughs> no way. So he ends up supporting the Polish army in the Polish-Soviet war. Uh, and again, okay. So so right. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So the under- So literally, he just goes ahead after the war, after he after crashed plane his plane crash. and was taken prisoner <laughs> by the fucking, by Kaiser fucking Wilhelm. <laughs> he like chills out for a little bit, uh, working for the Hoover administration to provide uh, food aid to Poland, sees Russia is uh, invading and immediately just volunteers to help the Polish army to help fight them back as a uh, freelance fighter pilot. He starts his own squadron called the uh, Kazusko Squadron. It's named after the same guy that uh, the bridge in New York City was named after, and I will never be able to pronounce it correctly, where he tries to enlist Polish-American citizens to, like, come back and help uh, save the homeland. Uh, so just just a fucking adrenaline junkie. Yeah, like, yeah. he's just back in the mix. It's crazy. And then in 1920, <laughs> uh, guess what? His plane is shot down 
again. He spends nine months in a Soviet prisoner of war camp and eventually manages to escape that one and uh, finds his way to Latvia. While a prisoner of war, he ends up writing an autobiography titled Things Men Die For, which he later regretted what writing. Because uh, apparently he wrote about an affair he had outside of wedlock, and he ended up having his buddy buy up all the copies published, 5,000 copies to be exact, uh, to which and they only they retained one copy each. I think they just got rid of the rest, burned the rest, whatever. Uh, just and just another factoid that's just crazy, you know, just, just says how crazy his life was. Uh, his time in the Soviet uh, prisoner of war camp solidified his lifelong hatred of commies. The dude is all red-blooded American, hates communism, hates the Soviet Union, and that'll be a theme throughout his life from that point Also, there is a Polish film that was made inspired by his experience in the Polish-Soviet War. This movie was apparently later destroyed by the Soviets, but again, just this is how inspiring this guy's life was. They made a movie about him just like when he was way young. When he got back to the States, he ends up getting work with the New York Times, and this sets off a whole new direction in his career, an exploratory direction. He gets commissions from also from Asia Magazine. Now, he got to travel on a sea voyage for uh, on an Asia Magazine uh, commission that took him to Abyssinia, also known as the Ethiopian Empire, with a camera guy named Ernest Shodsak. And here enters Ernest Shodsak into our story, another big major player of the original King Kong. I just want everyone to know that uh, Ernest Chotzak is a better man than I will ever be in terms of talent, <laughs> in terms of drive, in terms of uh, masculine strength, in terms of the people he kept close to him. Uh, he is a truly exceptional human being, and I still feel cooler than him because his last name is pronounced Chotzak. <laughs> <laughs> so, er- Ernest Chotzak. He runs away from home at the age of 14. He ends up working with road gangs as a kid and later worked as a surveyor in San Francisco. He became a cameraman and took his skills to World War I and flew in combat missions. And during that time, he severely damaged his eyesight. So he is a camera guy with terrible eyesight, which is very fascinating. Do- but it did give him a really cool-ass eye patch. Yes. And- He's this tall drink of water with a cool eye patch and a history and a bunch of war stories. And he's traveling the world uh, just filming the uh, previously unseen corners of the world uh, for an eager audience back home that is using this cutting edge film camera technology to gain access to sites that they never saw before. So he's also in the shit, as we call it, during World War One, but filming things. Then he gets hired after the war by the New York Times as a cameraman and on an expedition around the world. I'm so I'm sorry, it was actually for the New York Times, not Asia magazine. Either way, these two gents got to meet the Prince Regent of the Ethiopian Empire on this voyage, and on their way back, they got attacked by pirates and their ship was burned down. This is a crazy story. I just like by the time I got to this part, I was like, are you serious with all this shit? So they publish this series and then join reporter and explorer uh, Marguerite Harrison for the documentary named Grass. Uh, this is um, uh, this is essentially they follow the uh, Bakhtiari tribe of Lors in Persia as they uh, and their herds make their seasonal journey to better pastures. And uh, this was their first film. It is a documentary film. Uh, and it, it, it definitely sets off their collaboration as filmmakers together, but they slowly start moving into pre-written dramatic pieces after this. It should also be noted that uh, Marguerite Harrison it was like uh, 
had the kind of like uh, tough as nails, sassy dame uh, kind of existing among a team of grizzled explorers. And that dynamic very much made its way into uh, the character of Anne in King Kong. Ah, and another important uh, woman enters the scene here. Shodzak meets screenwriter and actress Ruth Rose, whom he later marries. Rose acted first on Broadway when she was 14. She later became the official historian on a New York Zoological Society expedition to the Galapagos Islands, which is where she met Shodzak. And the three of them then go on to make a movie called Chang, A Drama of the Wilderness, which is a silent film about a poor farmer in the north of Thailand and his daily struggle for survival in the jungle. They spent 18 months in the jungle to get all the scenes and were almost trampled by elephants, which is featured in the film, as well as other real dangers, and they refer to this type of filmmaking as a, quote, natural drama. Uh, This is uh, essentially, they would film it like a documentary, then create a plot around the footage that they got, so they were telling stories through real documentary style footage. Uh, Chang has a ton of really interesting, like, first-time movie moments in it. Um, They basically got a film camera up in a tiger's face. And so there's tons of scenes where real tigers are like lashing out against like right in front of the camera, which was an insane shot that nobody had attempted before in movies. The elephant stampede actually uses a aspect ratio shift. I mean, the it's dumb to use this as a analogy, but like the same kind of like, oh shit, when uh, WandaVision goes from like, you know, three by two TV ratio to full cinematic widescreen. Like the, the actual film stock kind of stretches out when the elephants enter the picture. And that was, and a, you know, a new technique that they had worked on for that movie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And their next film is another natural drama. This is called The Four Feathers. And this is filmed among the fighting tribes of the Sudan. During this filming, Cooper encountered a family of baboons, which reminded him of his child, childhood fondness for the creature back in that book about Africa that he read or was, had read to him, and he got it in his head that he wanted to make a, quote, terror gorilla picture. Uh, at this time, Cooper's buddy, who is an explorer named Douglas Burden, uh, he was the first explorer to have gone to Komodo, home of the Komodo dragon. And he comes back and he tells Cooper about this amazing lizard beast. And it's incredible. He's like, he kept, he kept saying over and over again, screeching, going, Holdenator's ho, Holdenator's <laughs> ho. And, and he couldn't believe it. And he was like, I got to put this crazy lizard creature in my movie with my monkey. And so this is this initial spark of the idea is a Komodo dragon fighting a baboon. It was the, it was the basic, basic pared down concept. And that was it. And uh, this was, you know, uh, this was that way until it changes pretty quickly over to being a gorilla. The reason for this is that the baboon was actually relatively unknown to the Western world at that time. And so uh, he, he switched over to gorilla to make it a little bit more of a recognizable uh, thing to Western audiences. Uh, also, uh, Cooper's buddy Douglas ended up bringing the Komodo dragon to New York City as a zoo exhibit, which brought Cooper to the concept of a story about an exp- expedition that takes a crew to an island at which a gorilla and a Komodo dragon fight each other, then get captured and brought back to New York City, then it escapes, terrorizes the city, then is finally killed. So now that 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 plot, basic plot structure, starting to come into frame. Though he does go back and forth in interviews, uh, right, Jake, about... 
the concept. He says it came from a dream that he had about planes, you know, a monkey on a, a terrorizing New York City and planes circling around him. He, he says different things, right? It all it's kind of wishy washy. The way I heard it told, uh, there's like a documentary, uh, an old like 80s documentary about him that uh, you can find on YouTube, uh, where he kind of describes uh, being, f- they describe how he kind of left the production of The Four Feathers uh, very frustrated because the story meant a lot to him. Uh, it was a book about a prisoner in Africa. And it was his only source of solace while he was a prisoner uh, during the Russo-Polish War. Mm. And so the story was very important to him. It kind of was supposed to be a culmination of his life experience, both traveling the world and dealing with imprisonment and war and all these things. And it just kind of like left him feeling kind of sour. And so he made his way back to New York. He joined the board of Pan American Airways, uh, Pan Am, you know, the first transit, regular transatlantic uh, service. Uh, He flew planes for them, uh, but he didn't have his heart in it. And during this time, he was in New York. He was hearing about all these stories of other explorers doing crazy shit with animals, hearing about the uh, Komodo dragon fiasco, and also looking out his window, seeing the, at the time, uh, world record-breaking skyscraper testament to humanity's own uh, glory, the Empire State Building getting built. And all he could think of was the same kind of wild animals that he witnessed uh, doing the news stories and filming Chang loose in the city and a great ape uh, traversing this, you know, humanity's uh, greatest tower and just really just finding that imagery just really captivating and just having these ideas stewing in his head. And that that final little concept is just the idea of a woman getting kidnapped in the expedition. That's like the final little layer of the plot. That he added at the end. Uh, but this is, you know, before uh, Superman. This is like before a lot of things are happening. And so, you know, it's not, he's not working off of that many, like, he's not copying anything. These are ideas that are really unique to a guy with his unique experience, kind of ex- uh, living both the uh, tranquil life of a businessman uh, in, mo- in the modern city of New York and seeing the most primal aspects of humanity and nature out in the jungles of the world, uh, both African and Southeast Asian, which kind of gets mushed into one exotic, yes. I don't know, slurry in, in the form of. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac burger, McNuggets or McCrispy sandwich, but you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Skull Island. 
so around this time, he's got this amazing big idea all existing on this exotic island and in New York City and this giant ape. And the Great Depression happens. And he is struggling to get this movie made. It is really, really hard to sell this concept during a time when this is all going down. And so Cooper ends up kind of just keeping the idea on the wayside. And he becomes an assistant at RKO Pictures. Uh, and uh, at this time, he is he's an assistant to the head of RKO, David O. Selznick. And his job, part of his job at least, is to vet projects for Selznick. One of these projects is called Creation. And this is essentially a remake of the popular film The Lost World, which is based on a story by Arthur Conan Doyle about a group of explorers who discover dinosaurs, bring them back to London, and one escapes and causes havoc. I don't know. Tell me if you have heard this one before. The original director was brought in to do creation along with the original stop animator, and that guy's name is Willis O'Brien. Remember it, because so much of the amazing technique and incredible just effects and everything in this original King Kong is coming from this one guy. Cooper realizes he's like, I know how to get this monkey movie made. I'll just steal this other movie's people and make it my make my own thing. And so he uh, he even uh, changes his concept from a 12-foot gorilla to a massive one that can fight, you know, that can stay at, be at the same size scale-wise as, as giant dinosaurs. And it's all based on O'Brien's previous work and previous models even that he had. RKO Pictures actually came about uh, due to the silent film era giving way to the talkies and RCA having an advanced sound on film system, which they wished to take into business with a circuit of theaters called Keith Albee Orpheum or KAO that were transitioning into films from the then dying off meeting of live vaudeville. So RKO Pictures is also in the business of trying to push the technology forward in film. So it's it actually is a, a worthwhile marriage for all of these people. So the film actually got a budget of two A pictures, uh, which essentially means uh, that during that time, two A pictures cost almost $500,000 by the end, which would be $10 million in today's money, which is unheard of for a film at the time. And they go into work, and Cooper uh, just gets into the business of trying to design this giant monkey monster with O'Brien and fam. So the uh, the order of events is is a little bit weird. Basically... Yeah, Willis O'Brien is stuck in development hell with creation. Uh, you know, it's kind of a rehash of the Lost World, which uh, had at the time the most cutting edge dinosaur effects. Um, it's very weird how Willis O'Brien's life has been defined by dinosaurs. Uh, you know, he was this kid from Oakland who worked at cattle ranches and like literally left home at the age of 13 to start working a series of odd jobs like uh, fur trapper, bar back, like all these things. Uh, he even worked as a guide for paleontologists who were investigating the Crater Lake region because he was just basically a f- glorified cowboy at this point before he even touched a camera. He eventually uh, got a job as a cartoonist and he worked on his art and his sculpting. Uh, he worked for uh, architects and like added, was sculpting like marble features for the hoity-toity and at one point, he got a hold of a newsreel camera because he got a job with a newspaper. And that's when he started futzing around with his love of sculpture and filmmaking to make these proto stop motion movies. And so at the I think it was for at the 1915 World's Fair, he made his first film, The Dinosaur and the Missing Link, A Prehistoric Tragedy, hmm. which is a silent film 
which is real fucking vaudeville about like a bunch of cavemen bonking each other on the head. And uh, it features, get this, an animated stop motion gorilla who uh, is up to hijinks and is very expressive. But um, after kind of getting jerked around and like, basically he is getting constantly underpaid, constantly getting his work diminished and just making special effects shots for these black and white movies. Uh, but he has a breakthrough with the lost world and then kind of hits a bump in his career because creation and RKO pictures got canceled from the, from the say so of uh, Cooper. And so Cooper immediately gets a hold of Willis and is like, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do my monkey idea. I know you have a bunch of dinosaur models. We're going to film a dinosaur fighting a monkey over a woman. And he get, grabs uh, Faye Ray, who he worked with on um, the Four Feathers, and they shot a test scene that ends up in the, the quintessential uh, T-Rex fight with uh, Faye Ray's character uh, up in the tree, like that famous one. Uh, they shot that before the movie was even greenlit. It took them seven weeks of meticulous stop-motion animation to get it done. It should be noted that both Willis O'Brien and Marion Cooper had experience with amateur and professional boxing. And that's why the fight scenes are way more like visceral and kind of believable <laughs> than a lot of other, like, you know, this, this is uh, way more intense and way more fucking physical and gnarly than uh, I'm just to throw out an example, a Shakespearean sword fight or, you know, kind of like, movie fisticuffs where everyone's like have at thee i'll give you the old one too like these are two creatures just like ripping each other apart in this movie and it's only after selznick uh at rko sees this footage that he's like oh fuck we have to give you all the money this is like this the monkey future movie, movie might make some moves <laughs> yeah exactly because they always talked and Words that started with the first letter, right? Uh, Ha-cha-cha-cha! <laughs> it was always, they're always like, their monocles were breaking. It was unbelievable what was going on with this happened. Yeah, so um, Cooper described the monster initially to O'Brien as, quote, a gigantic semi-humanoid gorilla pitted against modern civilization. This is from a memo in 1930 from Cooper. His hands and feet have the size and strength of steam shovels. His girth is that of a steam boiler. This is a monster with the strength of a hundred men, but more terrifying is the head. A nightmare head with bloodshot eyes and jagged teeth set under a thick mat of hair. Of ha a face half beast, half human. And when O'Brien and the sculptor Marcel Delgado started work on the animation model, Cooper went back on his half-human concept and asked them to make Kong a gorilla. And after some back and forth that wasn't working, Cooper said, I want Kong to be the fiercest, I'm sorry, I want Ka this Kong to be the fiercest, most brutal, monstrous damn thing that's ever been seen. And Cooper ended up sitting over the dimensions of a bull gorilla that he got from the American Museum of Natural History to O'Brien, who added some human-like qualities essentially just made it so that the gorilla could stand on two feet, which just gave a more dramatic appeal, more of a dramatic look, especially in those New York City, uh, you know, building and subway attack scenes and everything. It's just, it made him more, more of a uh, terrifying presence that he could stand on two feet and had that human-ish quality, but that was about it. Everything else very much more like, this is a big gorilla monster. 
I also just want to point out that uh, all this is happening uh, years and years before uh, Superman is invented uh, or created. And like just this level of like raw power and destruction, the idea that like a living thing could bend steel with its mighty hands was fairly new at the time and hadn't really been portrayed before. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, by the way, I mentioned Marcel Delgado. Marcel Delgado constructed the monster in a one foot to one inch scale to create a representation of the 12 foot beast. Delgado's family moved to California in 1910 to escape the Mexican Revolution, wouldn't you know, and first started sculpting at the age of six. And he's very interesting. He's very much an artist integrity type of guy. He left school early due to needing to support a young family. And he actually didn't learn English until he was 17, but later started taking taking lessons at the Otis Art Institute, where he met Willis O'Brien, who spent a lot of time courting Delgado into doing film, uh, because Delgado was uh, like, no, I'm a, I'm a true, I don't do that flim flam, I'm a true artist, uh, but he finally got him to work on The Lost World, and then of course Kong, and ended up having a light, he essentially showed him what his studio would look like. And Delgado was like, oh, my God. Like, it was just this, like, unbelievable studio with, like, all the tools and 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 um, different pieces of, of uh, equipment he would need to, to just have uh, an amazing time as an artist. So there were four models. There was a two-jointed 18-inch aluminum foam rubber latex and rabbit fur models that were used to be rotated during filming different movements the two the two models uh are slightly different from each other and amongst uh the kong aficionados <laughs> you can tell that uh one is long face which is the one that was first built and used in the test footage in the t-rex fight among a few other scenes and the second one is known as round face and that is uh seen in a lot of the more uh cuddlier moments between himself and uh, Fay Ray. And the techniques used by Willis and Delgado, uh, using the aluminum plates, tightening them with screws on the fly, depending on what they need to do, having the feet pegged onto the ground. Like, this are, these are still how a lot of modern claymation models are made. Which is why you just said, like, King Kong nerds or, or whatever, the, the nerds for this movie. I mean, Peter Jackson being a huge one, he has one of the original models. He has long face. He has the long face model. And, and people get mad nerdy about King Kong, yo, because this movie, like, really did, was such a game changer for, not just to be an inspiration for all these filmmakers to come, but really did completely just flip the script on what what could be done effects-wise with claymation and different aspect ratios we're about to get into, different filming techniques that are used to get these different types of shots. It is just unbelievable how many different, like, monumentally changing. Whereas I think in the before, it'd be like, oh, we're going to watch this entire movie because this one special effects shot is unbelievable. This is a movie where it's just wall-to-wall incredible effects and claymation work and stop motion. So... Uh, getting back to this though, so they they had one model just like those other two, but it was 24 inches tall for the New York scenes. Lastly, they had a small model made of lead and fur for that falling from the Empire State Building shot. 
So, <laughs> oh, the one where he hits all the yes. levels on the way down, yes. like Homer Simpson down the ravine. A hundred percent. Which is so funny you bring that up because Homer, of course, at one point is King Kong <laughs> in a parody on that TV show. The lips, eyebrows, and nose were made of rubber, which had to be replaced regularly under the hot lights during filming. And his eyes were made of glass. The face is controlled by thin, bendable wires threaded through holes drilled in his aluminum skull. They also had, besides the models, this massive bust made of Kong uh, uh, that was made of wood, cloth, rubber, and bearskin. And three people could control its metal levers, hinges, and air compressor to get facial expressions on those close-ups. And those close-ups, pretty amazing. Like, the way that, you know, I think the eyes are a little cartoonish in hindsight, but for the most part, like you really, there's so much articulation there that you would you wouldn't expect in a film made at that time. Well, it's the the big headshots which they used for close-ups is kind of funny because it's the exact perspective and size that like any kid of the 80s and 90s would be familiar with yes. because it's the exact proportions of the Universal Studios backlot ride where you end up having the confrontation. With the banana breath and all that shit. It's like kind of one to one. It's it's kind of like it's nostalgic when they cut to the close up big model. They also had two versions of the hand that were made for those grabbing at people shots, as well as a leg used for stompings. So that's mm. fun. The dinosaurs were made in a similar fashion, were based on murals in the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Some had football bladders installed in them to simulate breathing, and the studio lights, again, were not kind to the latex skin. They were constantly having to replace stuff. It was definitely sounded like a, a big nightmare. I never thought about that, about how, how the heat coming from lamps mixed with whatever technique they're using to create these different models. I mean, all through film history, this has got to be such a frustrating shitty combo that you always have to deal with on a film set. Well, they're fighting the hot studio lights. They're constantly having to fix the models. Uh, Willis O'Brien is keeping track of like the positions, the physicality. He's uh, working with uh, Cooper on the fly with the fight choreography kind of going like, okay, so then what does he do? And uh, Cooper's like, then he grabs him by the neck and he just starts throttling him. <laughs> and uh, and the breathing pattern of the of the uh, dinosaurs. And uh, for a lot of the scenes where there's human characters, either when they're, they're not like just a stop motion stand in themselves, they're using a cutting edge technique using a film and projector setup that they yes. invented so that they can put in footage frame by frame of the live action actors responding and reacting to the on to, to the monsters on set filming it all in camera all keeping track of it in their own head frame by frame which is a herculean endeavor that i can't even begin to understand it's crazy. how they kept track of it all before we get to the P the actors being mixed in i will say they spent 7 weeks on just the t-rex kong fight and they had to take as few breaks as possible when shooting this stuff in order to keep everything as consistent looking as possible it sounded like a real grind then of course yes the technique in order to get actors interacting with the stop motion models and the foregrounds and the backgrounds so they so that they uh made it look as seamless as possible and it still looks pretty good today they had to incorporate a couple of techniques that made my head hurt reading about so the first one is the dunning process the dunning process uses bypacking bypacking is the act of loading two reels of film into a camera 
and lighting it in a certain way, you had to use specifically blue and yellow lights. So the dunning process is only really possible in black and white because it would just look ridiculous in color with the way they had to light it. So it, it ends up looking like a background image and a foreground image are happening at once, though they are filmed completely separately. This is notably used when one of the planes attacking Kong crashes into the Empire State Building, and also when Kong is fighting natives at the wall while others run in the foreground. The second process is the Williams process. This is really interesting to me. This, uh, this allowed for the integration of actors' movements in front of moving mats behind them and involved an optical printer, which was like a projector combined with a camera that made it so that several strips of film could be combined into a single composited image that was the foreground, the stop-motion animation, the live-action footage, and the background all combined into a single print. Essentially, they would have to like shoot an actor in front of a black background, then they would uh, print it out so many times that it, they got, they achieved a certain effect. Then they like would a, like, it was a, it's a, it's a mask. Yeah. It's a literal mask that kind of creates a hole in the film stock that will then be cut out of the second layer of footage yes. that they want to incorporate. And then it looks like the guy is running with the jungle behind him, but there's no that it's it's two completely shot separately shot things, right? I mean, it's as best as I could figure it out. That was what it was. It's so crazy. Then of course there's rear screen projection, which uh, is a little bit simpler. You just have an actor performing in front of a translucent screen, and there's a projector, you know, uh, behind the screen, which is giving us our projected background that the actor can work in front of. This is pre, you know, this is what they had to do pre green screen essentially to get any kind of. Uh, actor in front of a background that doesn't exist situation it's the feeling that i got watching king kong the first time is a feeling that like i hadn't experienced when watching a movie in the longest time which is the like that that thrill of oh my god how'd they do that because now you watch any movie and it's like okay yeah it's computers they used computers right. they used computers <laughs> he's there was a guy with a motion capture suit holding a tennis ball and they put it in in post like i got it i got it and uh, watching even 80s movies now, you're like, it's all pneumatic tubes beneath the floor. They filmed the, the monsters yeah. being controlled beneath the floor. Everything's built six feet higher than it should be yeah. to hide all the shit. But you know that it's just insane <laughs> to get any of this stuff in 1933. Yeah, watching it now, I was str- I was like, how did they do that before <laughs> computers, before chroma keying, before all this shit? Uh, the tiny projectors really was what like killed it for me. I was like, holy fuck, I would not have thought of that. So if you want to know, the greatest achievement in this film, effects-wise, may be when Kong fights the Elasmosaurus in his lair because it combined the following elements in one shot. A miniature set, stop-motion animation for Kong, background matte paintings, real water, foreground rocks with bubbling mud, smoke, and two miniature rear screen projections of Driscoll and Anne. And apparently, by the way, um, Faye Ray had to sit in that tree for like 22 hours, and it was incredibly painful, so that's a whole other situation. She, They put her through the fucking ringer, man, for this movie. She was just screaming her guts out to the point where when she watched the movie afterwards, she was like, the screaming is distracting. Easily distracting. I do want to go back really quick and talk about the script very briefly and just say that they got British mystery adventure writer. His name is uh, Edgar Wallace. He had recently been hired by RKO as a screenwriter and was assigned to the rough draft. He died like right after or right when they just started rewrites. Cooper brings in a couple more screenwriters to develop the script. And most importantly, Ruth Rose 
uh, ended up doing a lot of work paring it down, streamlining the script. So Ruth Rose, if you want to highlight someone in terms of the reworking the script, she is, ends up going on and making the terrible sequel, but we'll talk about that in just a second. So Ruth Rose um, is credited after the fact by having punched up like 80% of the dialogue. And although it is less um, exhilarating as the kind of special effects spectacle that follows in the second half of the movie. The first half on the boat is rife with great characterization, snappy, old-timey dialogue, and uh, the kind of dynamic between Carl Denham, the director, uh, Anne Darrow, the fae actress plucked from the streets, and Jack Driscoll, the kind of uh, uh, hard-hearted, adventuring seaman who, like, didn't think he was capable of love, really mirrors the dynamic between Cooper, Shotzak, yes. and Rose, with uh, Shotzak being this kind of stern, like, uh, man of few words, and uh, her relationship with him her being her kind of, like, softening his heart and, like, kind of showing him that, like, Danes are more than just trouble. I just want to, like, you know, the lines like... Um, you know, it was the airplanes that got him. No, no, it wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast? And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, uh, warning in the, the scene where uh, Jack is talking about how he might have feelings for uh, Anne and Carl Denham is like, oh, yeah, some big hard boiled egg gets a look at a pretty face and bang, he cracks up and goes sappy. Like, this is really snappy, like it's very compelling dialogue. And Ruth Rose should get credit for her contributions. Um, the What was the name of the mystery writer again? Uh, the mystery adventure writer, Edgar Wallace. According to one documentary I watched, uh, Edgar Wallace's influence can be felt with the prevalence of gas bombs. Apparently, Wallace involved knockout gas and gas grenades <laughs> like constantly in his works. It was <laughs> like his like claim to fame is that the dude loved gas bombs. And so I just wanted to throw that out there. Yes, maybe he farted a lot in his own. Maybe he died of some sort of gastrointestinal issue. Either way, the name, let's talk about it. Very important because where the hell did they pull this name out? Cooper liked one word titles for his films. Uh, we saw that with Grass. We saw that with Chang. It's, uh, he also liked really strong words that started with a K, like Komodo, Kodak, all that kind of stuff. So the gorilla was originally to come from the Congo. Because remember, they were going to bring a gorilla to, uh, to Komodo Island to fight a Komodo dragon. So originally that, that gorilla would come from the Congo which led to the name Kong for the creature. The film was at one point called The Beast, but producers didn't love that, so they played with the title, at one point pitching Kong King of the Be- King of Beasts and Kong the Jungle King. Producer David O. Selznick, apparently, is who dubbed the film King Kong shortly before release. So it was definitely something that they went back and forth on for a very long time. Just uh, moving on to the filming, uh, it was shot over an eight-month period on several different sound stages. A lot was shot in New York City and Los Angeles with set pieces reused uh, from other films like The Great Wall in the island scenes. This was from Cecil B. DeMille's film The King of Kings. The wall and gate actually end up later getting destroyed for Gone with the Wind's Burning of Atlanta sequence six years later. So you can actually see that get destroyed in Gone with the Wind. The native village stuff was shot in Culver City, California, which is a place they shoot a ton of locational stuff. The Shrine Auditorium in Los Angeles was rented for just one day to get the Kong at the movie theater, or I'm sorry, to get the Kong at the theater scenes. That was it. 
So uh, another another really important part of this film would definitely be the sound design. Uh, there's a guy named Murray Spivak who did the sound engineering for the film. He also ends up winning an Oscar for doing the sound design on the film Hello, Dolly, years later. He got Kong's roar by recording growls of zoo lions and tigers and then played them backwards and slowed them down. Spivak actually did the grunting himself for when Kong gets all horny, horny for that lady, lady. He also stomped across a box filled with gravel with plungers wrapped in foam attached to his feet for Kong's footsteps, and he hit his assistant on the chest with a drumstick. The assistant had a microphone attached to his back, and that's how they got the chest beating that Kong does. Uh, uh, In other words, sound engineering was way more fun and cool back in the day. For the dinosaur noises... Also, he... mm -hmm. Uh, just the fact that he used like used uh, cutting edge tape technology to alter the sounds and get the exact kind of thing he wanted and to balance it out with the soundtrack in a way that actually fit instead of um, like when you think of old timey movies, like what is the soundtrack of an old black and white movie? It's like doodly doo doo doodly doo doo. And then like incredibly loud bonks and slide whistles. And that's because those sound ba- sound techniques we're not matured enough and we're not the innovation wasn't there before this movie. Like it's, it's a silly little thing to point to, but yeah. like, it's just another way this movie was groundbreaking. The dinosaur noises, uh, for those he used an air compressor and his own vocals for the T-Rex, he added a dash of puma screams. I love it. They're like alchemists back in the day. These sound, I mean, they still kind of are. They still do this. This is still Foley 101. Yeah, they still do Foley stuff, but it is just so fun, man. Like, it's like, I'll add a dash of puma to make my T-Rex noise. It should be noted that Faye Ray did her own screams in one single recording session, and uh, she did kill it with that. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Since they were a couple hundred dollars over budget, uh, they ended up paying composer Max Steiner 50... Uh, by the way, no, that's a couple hundred thousand dollars over budget. Cooper paid composer Max Steiner $50,000 out of his own pocket, and Steiner uh, went um, big on an original composition. They were actually initially going to try to get them to just reuse old score stuff, but uh, he he knew that they needed an original score for this. The it, the it is the first feature-length musical store written for an American talkie film, the first major Hollywood film to have a thematic score rather than, a back, than background music, and the first to mark the use of a 46-piece orchestra. It is also the first to be recorded on three separate tracks. You've got uh, dialogue, sound effects, and music all mixed in together and incorporated late, late motifs. We've talked about them before. This is inspired from opera, where each character has their own theme that gets replayed in different manners throughout the film. 
It should be noted that Max Steiner is a legend in the history of uh, movie music and Hollywood film composing. Um, he really is like kind of the through line that takes like Beethoven to Wagner to uh, Broadway to uh, movie soundtracks and giving everyone their own themes. He then goes on to make uh, the soundtracks to uh, Casablanca and Gone with the Wind, an actual living legend. And at the time they were like, eh, we'll just use some old music. Who cares? <laughs> And it is such an iconic score, and of course, you've got the overture if you watch it now, so you can hear all those themes right up top if you really want to. It's kind of cool. The release of the film, the film, the movie sells out four days, ten showings a day at Radio City Music Hall, setting major records for for that theater. It had its official world premiere at Grauman's Chinese Theater in Hollywood. Each show was preceded with a big music and dance number. It's this huge affair. They had the giant bust of King Kong in the lobby. After its premiere, it was censored by the production code. Several scenes were trimmed that involved lots of violence. And this was probably my favorite thing I learned about this movie. RKO, even before the original film was put out, that was, again, censored by the production code, just certain gruesome murder scenes. You'll see them if you go watch it. You're kind of like, wow, I can't believe they went there in 1933. You'll notice the ones that uh, they probably censored back then. My favorite favorite fact about uh, the censored scenes, stuff like uh, King Kong, uh, they literally put one of the tribesmen actors into the jaws of the big King Kong head and had him, like, get crunched around and stomped on him. Uh, during the famous uh, Empire State Building scene, uh, King Kong initially reaches in and grabs the wrong woman from her bedroom and sees that it's not Fay Ray and just drops yes. her and you see her plummet. <laughs> and home movie aficionados back in the day where you had to like set up your eight millimeter film, you know, 16 millimeter or whatever. There was a black market of the deleted scenes that yes. had like grody quality you know, scratched to hell, just being copied and copied from who knows what sources. And it was like a time-honored tradition for home uh, movie fans to, like, physically take their film reel of King Kong and hand-tape the deleted scenes back into it. And my favorite, as I was getting to before, RKO, before this movie even came out, they, they pulled a scene in which after the crew members are shaken off the log by Kong, they end up at the floor of the canyon, and in comes, like, giant insects, spiders, a reptile, a human-like lizard man, and a tentacled creature just devouring them. They only have a couple of stills of this still remaining. Everything else was scrapped. There's also a couple of just renderings, like, essentially storyboard drawings of what the scene would look like, just to give you an idea, but it is chaos, and it is so insane, and the spider looks crazy, and like it's just such an insane bunch of monsters to throw into this film. Like, oh my god, Skull Island's a nightmare, and I just we'll love talk it. about it next week. But Peter Jackson recreated that scene using Golden Age uh, special effects techniques just to like appreciate yes. how hard it was back in the day, and the uh, modern recreation of that scene in two thousand five is one of the most horrifyingly bleak moments in the entire movie. But we'll get to that next time. (laughs) We'll get to it next time. Uh, But let's get instead to the weird as hell Son of Kong, which I did watch. 
Uh, after you the, watched it. I couldn't. I couldn't. I mean, I, I'm gonna, I had it on while doing research, so I was like half okay. watching it. But and and honestly, it was hard to get the research done. It was so ridiculous. The so King Kong's this huge success. This movie, Son of Kong, comes out in 1933 as well. Just to give you an idea how slapped together this because the is. idea of a direct sequel was really new at the time. They yeah. honestly like didn't quite you know because this wasn't a serial. This wasn't a like thing that they shot ahead of time to release like before regular movies. They just were f- completely sideswiped by the success of King Kong, and we're like, we we got to do this. Uh, fuck, wh- how do we do this? And I love it because Ruth Rose writes it, and her strategy is hilarious. And I don't think it's one adopted in modern day Hollywood. She, this is her quote: "If you can't make it bigger." Make it funnier. (laughs) So, because she knew she couldn't top the original one in terms of scope and size and everything. So, the movie has Carl Denham from the first movie having to leave New York City directly following the events of the first film because, you know, he. Everybody. That's that's a great choice. A very funny choice. Is that everybody is suing him and he has to leave leave America because he's on the line. He's like working in trade. He's having a hard time. He ends up at this monkey show. There's little monkeys on stage playing instruments. And he meets his new female love interest because she's like part of it and goes out and sings a song. And uh, originally, uh, and then they meet the man who originally gave them the map to Skull Island and tells them that there's treasure there. So this woman joins them on this journey. They go back to Skull Island and encounter Kong's son, who is smaller and cuter and helps them fend off all those pesky dinosaurs. And it is just so funny because, yes, there's really goofball-y, slapsticky moments during the fights. Like, you know, like the kind of thing like Kong getting like hit in the head with a coconut and going, whoa, with his like eyes go all swirly. Oh, there is tons of shots of Kiko, short for King Kong, uh, just giving like little double takes to the camera and being like, oh gosh, or like, ooh, me? It's so stupid. It's so funny. And yeah, they, they end up reusing a lot of stuff from the first movie, like a lot of models and things like that, set pieces. The, the film is released the same year. You know, it gets middling reviews. Who would have guessed it? it? It really is such an undercutting of the first one to such a degree that it really just never should have been. I mean, I, I love that that was her strategy. If you can't make it bigger, make it funnier. But I don't think any audience was looking for a sequel, especially because I, I think we didn't speak towards this enough, how much Cooper and team really made it a point to make this monkey in every way as terrifying as possible. Like they were going to have some lighter humorous moments in the film with King Kong and they removed all of it because it was the opposite of Son of Kong. They were like, we need this to be like the straightest, most terrifying like entity that we can possibly make this thing. And then Son of Kong just undercuts all of that. So either way, that, that's about all I have to say about it. I think we should definitely move on to finish out with King Kong versus Godzilla. King Kong goes to Japan. I just wanted to say that um, the Dream Team kind of gets back together in 19... 19- uh, 49 for the movie Mighty Joe Young. It's mm. directed by Shotsack, produced by Marion C. Cooper, screenplay by Ruth Rose, and features some of the most amazing character animation done by Willis O'Brien. It is a much smaller ape, but it is definitely like one of the first spiritual sequels, spiritual reboots uh, of its era. And it is an incredible work uh, just for the animation alone. Uh, if you just look up qu- clips of this, the ape is so expressive. The way they incorporate uh, live actors into the shots is incredible. And uh, Mighty Joe Young is way more uh, 
sympathetic. They kind of like lean into the fact that by the end of the first King Kong, you really do feel for the beast. You really yeah. do feel sad for him. They've imbued so much primal humanity into this monster that like it's become a beloved icon. And so Mighty Joe Young kind of makes him into a hero. Uh, and it's just kind of this big hurrah, this victory lap for the production company and the people involved to kind of like recapture that King Kong magic. Uh, also, uh, RKO around the 1950s goes bust. And what that means is King Kong, Son of Kong, and Mighty Joe Young are available for licensing way cheaper than other big blockbusters of the time. And so they get a lot of airplay as TV movies, the million dollar movie, the monster creature feature. Like these movies are rerun constantly by local affiliate TV stations, introducing them to a whole new audience of kids and who get to like bond with their parents because these are movies that their parents grew up with. And it cre- it just keeps these movies in the popular imagination way longer than they have any right to be. So now we get to this point where uh, you've got no sign of King Kong in the cinema. Uh, and in 1954, Toho Studios puts out Godzilla, directed by Ishiro Honda, which had a monster attacking Japan as an allegory for the nuclear bombings of World War II. They followed that up in 1955 with Godzilla Raids Again, which had a different director and was panned by critics at the time. It was later more appreciated. But regardless, very similar situation for Godzilla. Got two movies, ends up being this big franchise, ends up being this kind of renowned thing but at the point in time that we're talking about just two movies each for king kong and godzilla and meanwhile willis o'brien is developing an idea for king kong meets frankenstein so willis o'brien yeah. <laughs> had a very tragic life um his wife uh had medical issues and ended up going crazy and killing their two children oh my god um he was screwed over from a lot of uh his past work um, he's seeing his career kind of get eclipsed by some of his former um, assistants and protégés like Ray Harryhausen. And he's falling on hard times. And one of the only things he can really do to like just get a little bit of money to get his life back together is to get another King Kong produced. Like this is his 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 big swing, one of his last like, uh, you know, chances to get back in the the limelight. And so he really believes in this. Uh, King Kong versus Frankenstein idea. The uh, the fact is, is that both King Kong and Frankenstein are two golden age monsters that are sympathetic and popular in the collective unconscious. And it's it, it even though it does seem silly, the idea of King Kong fighting this uh, Promethean giant uh, with Willis O'Brien at the helm doing the effects would be a good movie. It is a pretty good movie. So he starts pitching it around to as many producers as he can. And unfortunately, nobody really takes a bite. However, one producer who turns down Willis O'Brien does just kind of steal his idea. <laughs> yes, pretty much. John Beck, he he promises to seek out a studio to make the film. And uh, he brings in screenwriter, a screenwriter named George Worthing Yates, who takes this story treatment and fleshes out a screenplay. They end up calling it King Kong versus Prometheus, uh, which Prometheus, I forget the original title of Frank, uh, Frankenstein's monster, but it, it had like it was like the Prometheus monster or something like that, uh, and are unable to find American backing for it. So they shop it overseas. This catches the eye of the Japanese studio Toho, who made Godzilla. Toho buys the script, 
replaces Frankenstein's monster with Godzilla, and had uh, Shinichi Sekizawa, who had just written the first Mothra movie, rewrite the script. O'Brien knows about none of this. O'Brien is just completely left in the dark on all of these changes, everything going on. And that is the real, real sin here on Beck's part. It really sucks. He got no credit on the original idea. And uh, and Cooper is incensed about all this going on. I said there was a funny quote from him. He writes a letter to a friend, and in it he says, I was indignant when some Japanese company made a belittling thing to a creative mind called King Kong versus Godzilla. I believe they even stooped so low as to use a man in a gorilla suit, which I have spoken out against so often in the early days of King Kong. Flames on the side of my face. He was very upset about this. And uh, so, it yes. It should be noted that uh, the Japanese movie industry actually did pr- uh, produce two knockoff King Kong movies illegally using the character's name. One was just kind of a just knockoff version where it was just King Kong, but in Japan. And another one was like a weird historical uh, retelling where it was called like King Kong and Edo. But all the film prints of that were destroyed during World War II. So the Japanese populace were familiar with King Kong. So they bring in Ashiro Honda again, who did the first Godzilla movie. He wanted to show the absurdity of what TV networks and their sponsors were willing to do to get big ratings. Honda said, all a medicine company would have to do is just produce good medicines, you know? But the company doesn't think that way. They think they will get ahead of their competitors if they use a monster to promote their product. And in the movie, it's very funny. It's even the American version. You've got this like TV, TV network guy, and he's just like, I'm sick of this Godzilla. We need our own. I want my own monster. <laughs> like, it wasn't even a TV. It was like, a, again, a far, it was literally the head of a far, pharmaceutical company. I could, I, I, it was hard to tell. Yeah, it's so funny. It's like, I, I'm tired of this monster. Let's get our own monster to advertise was, uh, our product. Yeah. Ichiro Arishima as Mr. Taco, the comedic heart of the movie. Yeah, yeah, totally. And I do I do enjoy the comedic elements. Kind of reminded me a little bit of Shin Godzilla in its... In its um, satirization of all of that. Kong's design was a huge point of contention as RKO did instruct that they couldn't make the, the monster look anything like the original. So after a couple of designs that were tossed away because they de- were deemed too cute, sculptor Teizo Toshimitsu based Kong's face on the Japanese macaque uh, monkey instead rather than a gorilla. Uh, so... You've got a showed sacker and a macaque in this episode. There you go. Fun stuff. It's really the, uh, gnarly. Effects, it's like, and, and it is a weird, it's a gnarly. Yeah, can we talk about it for a second? That, he has like he's spindly got like little pointy teeth yeah. instead of like that big gorilla grin. Yeah. He's a very, they do a weird thing where like in some shots, his arms are super long to like show that he's like a an ape-like thing, even though he's walking upright on two legs. Right. But then whenever it's time for like, actual combat he's just a guy in a gorilla costume um they introduced the idea i pro- i bet this is somehow left over from the frankenstein idea that king kong is uh strengthened by electricity yes that's which a they weird just, even thing. in the movie uh the, our point of view characters who kind of are these comedic like buddies working for the pharmaceutical company whose job it is to uh, travel to the mysterious island populated entirely by Japanese people in Afro wigs and blackface mm-hmm. uh, to capture King Kong. And at one point, like they're like, oh, wait, there's a lightning storm coming. This will be good because King Kong gets stronger from electricity. And one guy just turns and goes, 
King Kong gets stronger from electricity. And the other guy's like, yep, that King Kong gets stronger from electricity. <laughs> like, even they know it's a dumb idea. Yeah, it's really ridiculous, but definitely very exciting for effects director I.G. Suburayua, who dropped all of his projects at the time to do the movie. He was a huge King Kong film guy. He loved it. It's, King Kong inspired him to get into the business. He also wanted to appeal to a broader audience, though, so he ends up taking the series in a lighter direction. So in the action sequences, there are often humorous moments. It's also very often inspired by professional wrestling, which is becoming very popular at this time in the early 60s. The two actors in the suits were named uh, Shoichi uh, Hirose, and um, he played Kong, and Haruo uh, Nakajima, who played Godzilla, they were pretty free, along with IG, to choreograph their own moves, and they especially were inspired by a wrestler named Toyo Nobori, who was this big kind of Andre the Giant-style wrestler, big lumbering wrestler, loved to do these big takedown moves, these grapple moves. You see a ton of that grappling work and things of that nature in the film, uh, for sure. It's very much, very, very much uh, knowing that feels professional wrestling-inspired. God, I remember being a kid, getting into like kaiju movies and being, and I, I, this is like definitely a constructed memory, but like I vaguely remember being on the schoolyard and being like, oh man, who would win in a fight, King Kong or Godzilla? And my friend of mine being like, oh, they made a movie <laughs> where they fought. And that blew my mind because this is before the MCU. This is before like right. the idea that it's different so characters from different movies could just fight each other was yeah. I remember having my mind blown I was like wait they did a movie where King Kong fights Godzilla how is it and my friend being like eh and I was like what do you mean eh how can the answer to that question be possibly eh? be that and it kind of it, I, I enjoy it's a fun kaiju film and, but it is so odd this because especially because of America's relationship to Japan when it comes to the creation of Godzilla and then to have this American created thing uh, move over, go to Japan, and on uh, you know fight on their ground. Then for King Kong to win at the end, there was this big rumor. By the way, kinda, that, kinda, kinda. The, the, it's ambiguous, but kind of, kind of says that Kong kind of wins at the they end. They both fall into the ocean, and we only see King Kong swim away. Right. There was a rumor. Yeah, again, this is definitely on the schoolyard. I wish that this in was Japan, real. This, this should have been real, by the way. Like, they, if they were smart, they would have done this, and it would have been amazing that the American version Kong would have won, and the Japanese version uh, Godzilla would have won. The small nugget of truth to that rumor is that in the American version, which is just like the original Godzilla, just intercut with a white guy kind of just talking and explaining things in between, like every couple of scenes to just be like. Yep, hello, don't worry, here's a white face, everyone be calm, it's fine. Uh, I'm representing the UN, and I'm helping cover this breaking story. It's so weird. In the Japanese version, right before the credits roll, you hear Godzilla roar. Ah. You know, leading credence to the idea that he's still alive and will return. And in the American version... That doesn't happen, uh, and it's just like, yep, Godzilla's gone, but King Kong is left. The end. Yeah, it's very abrupt ending. It's it's uh, I literally just watched it. Good times. Yeah, uh, for sure. Good, good. It's a good movie to eat cereal too when you wake up. Mm. I think it's a good. It's a good cereal movie. Uh, but yes, this film comes out in Japan in 1962, American 1963. It's a huge hit, especially in Japan. It ends up being one of the biggest Godzilla films at the box office uh, to date. 
And uh, then you have, before we fully wrap things up here, just, just to quickly mention, King Kong Escapes. This is the second and last Toho-produced King Kong film. Uh, it is again directed by Ishiro Honda, but it also got an overseas release as well in 1968. It's a bizarre mishmash of James Bond parody mixed with a King Kong movie, mixed with a kaiju movie. It, an evil genius named Doctor Who creates a robot version of King Kong called uh, Mechanicong, and he gets him to try to get radiation from the North Pole. Mechanic Kong short circuits. The Doctor ends up trying to get the real Kong to finish the job. Kong ends up falling in love with another human woman during this. He ends up fighting uh, Mechanic Kong to the death along with other kaiju monsters as well along the way. It is a bizarre, slightly a remake of an actually an animated TV series we also have to mention. This was produced by Toei Animation and Videocraft. And Rankin Bass. And Rankin Bass. It ran in, in the U.S. actually on ABC in the late 60s. It had about 26, I know it specifically had 26 episodes. And uh, he, King Kong befriends the Bond family, and it largely parodies the spy films of the 60s as well. And he has this like boy sidekick. They remove the boy sidekick. And they add this mad scientist character, and that's how they get this movie. And it's just this strange James Bond parody all wrapped into a kaiju and King Kong film. Very odd. Mechanic Kong is an incredible design. Yes, Please really Google the, fr- the phrase Mechanic Kong Very cool. and witness the amazing design of this thing. I will go with you on that. I have not, I will admit, I have not seen. King Kong Escapes, and I apologize to the listeners. I I should have done my due diligence, but I watched Son of Kong, damn it, and I deserve credit for that. <laughs> but uh, King Kong versus Godzilla was a huge hit in Japan, and it revitalized the King uh, yes. the Godzilla franchise and, and kind King of Kong. ushered in the Toei. Uh, sorry, not the Toei, the uh, Toho Kaiju film empire of that Showa era. So like. Everything we know and love about Godzilla kind of got revitalized and would not have been possible without King Kong versus Godzilla, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. What marked like kind of the the kind of last hurrah of King Kong ushered in the rejuvenation of Godzilla. Yes. It, and and to, for it to be that third film for both the monsters is, is also very fascinating to me. Toho wanted to use King Kong for its 1968 film, Destroy All Monsters, but by this point, the license was set to expire, so they had to drop him from the picture. They did reuse the suit a couple times, so they gave the creature a different name so, in some different uh, Toei, Toho films. In the early 90s, they tried to do a Godzilla versus Mecha Kong, Mechanic Kong, rather, film, but found that even getting the likeness of King Kong was going to be too tough a task. So they end up dropping the project. So the creature will remain dormant from film for a decade. And we will see you all next week when Kong comes back to America in the 1970s. Jake, we did it. We made it through King Kong part one, a fascinating voyage around the world, no less. There's still so much to talk about. Yeah. We got to talk about uh, Dino De Laurentiis and his weird production company. We got to talk about how Jeff Bridges and Jessica Lange are the sexiest human beings who ever existed in 1970. I don't think I've seen this Kong film, and I actually have not seen the Peter Jackson Kong film either. So, Ooh. yeah, I'm very... This is going to be an interesting week for me. I'm a little bit dreading the J- Peter Jackson one only because it's such a long film. And unnecessarily so, apparently, to, from what I've heard. Well, it's, I remember it being so long at the time, but now that I 
I'm going to rewatch it with fresh eyes towards the original. I feel like I'm going to notice like what he was going the love for letter. and like because he's yeah. he's such a huge King Kong fan, obviously. So and, and and that that was essentially the film he got to make after he proved himself to Hollywood with the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Well, he did before. Well, they were going to give him King Kong to reward him for what was going to be the hit movie of the year, The Frighteners. But then The Frighteners <laughs> was not the hit movie, right? Right. And they kind of took it away from right. him. Oh, interesting. Oh, this is going to be a cool, cool week. Well, either yeah, yeah, yeah. we'll get there. I'm excited for it. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, that was a really fun one for me, especially to go back and see. I mean, come on, that that that. For movie definitely give it a watch it's so it's so fucking good uh check us out patreon.com forward slash whizbrew jake already spoke about our 15 dollars tier with the sunday study session also for five bucks just five bucks a month you get weekly bonus episodes every single month and uh this newest one, week every week nope, my friend i said weekly episodes every single month oh yeah i'm trained <laughs> i'm trained in it uh but uh i will so does that <laughs> Does that make no sense? Is my brain melting from doing all this King Kong research? But I also, I will say, we recently did one about um, the Lola Bunny controversy. So if you'd like to hear some very important reportage happening over there in that Patreon uh, bonus episode is where you can find it. You can also catch me on Twitch, twitch.tv forward slash HoldenatorsHo. Catch me Monday, Tuesday, Friday nights. Always a blast. Uh, And uh, Jake... Follow me on Twitter at Best Jake Young to read all of my thoughts and plops and uh, interesting finds from my week of research. Uh, learn cool stuff before you hear it over at uh, twitter.com <laughs> slash Best Jake Young. Hell yeah. And always remember, never stop bruising. And keep on whizzing. This show is made possible by listeners like you. Thanks to our ad sponsors. You can support our shows by supporting them. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to lastpodcastnetwork.com. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In a fast-paced world, every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, We've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.